It's great to be back at TMU, it's a place I love and have spent, frankly, most of my life here and uh, am indebted to all the relationships that the Lord granted me while I was here, both as a student as well as a staff member, who really shaped my understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for me. And uh, it was always a, a great joy and I consider it a privilege to be a part of the team here uh, in leadership and trying to give every student who attends the Master's Univer University the same exact chance that I had to take the truth that's been entrusted to us here and to declare it to a world that does not know the name of Jesus Christ, has yet to hear of the wonderful message of hope and redemption, who lives a life uh, in darkness pursuing what they think is truth but maybe have been misled or led astray by false religions or false worldviews. Aren't you thankful that God brought you to the Master's University where every day with clarity, whether from a faculty member in the classroom or from the pulpit here in ch chapel, or it might be a, a fellow student, a roommate, or someone on student life staff who continues to draw us back to the truth? It is the truth that gives us hope. It is the truth that's been entrusted to us to declare to the nations. I'm so glad to hear Josh read Psalm 67, one of many psalms that reminds us of the wonderful truth that God has a plan to reach men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation and bring them into a relationship to know him, to love him, to worship him, to obey him, and make Christ their Lord. I trust that's true of you and your own motivation as you come to chapel today. Years ago when we started uh, this chapel tradition, our commissioning chapel, it was with the intention of saying, this time of year is not just about wrapping up the school year. It's easy for us to become very self-focused, isn't it? You got a lot of work to get done the next week, right CJ? You got finals week ahead of you. So it's easy to begin to think about your task list and, and everything that you have to do to complete the semester. And when we do that, we also have a tendency to begin to think about, wow, coming into the summer, the summer's more about me, in the sense of uh, not just working and things like that, but kind of getting a break from school. I found in my Christian life that it's those times where I anticipate uh, rest and a break that I'm most vulnerable to sin because I begin to let down my defenses. And so we realize that as we anticipate the summer months here at TMU, yes, there's those going out on go teams, which we're gonna celebrate this morning and commit them to the Lord. There's those of you who are going to go serve in camps or have jobs where God's gonna place you in the context of relationships that you're going to be able to not just speak truth, but to model truth to them. He already knows who those people are, you may not, but he's ordained for you to have those conversations, to have those relationships. For some of us, if not all of us, is gonna be in the context of our own family, having not just believing family members, but there's many of us who have unbelieving family members. And the summer provides an opportunity for us to engage them as well. And so the summer is not a time to let down, it's, it's, it's a time to steward. It's a time to, to be released in a sense from our schedules here at TMU, our, our, our classes and our duties and our responsibilities, and I think to embark on what is the most uh, amazing privilege of life, and that is to be an instrument of God, an ambassador of God, to go out and to live the truth and to proclaim the truth. I hope that's what you're looking forward to. I know you gotta get through the next couple of weeks, 
okay? But let's begin to prepare our hearts and mind for what God has ordained for us to do this summer. Now, I'm indebted to the Master's University for many things I could never recount if I had the whole chapel time to do so. But one particular experience that I had here that was life-changing was a summer while I was a student, uh, a sophomore, I was invited to participate in a summer missions trip. To my knowledge, it was the first summer missions trip that had ever been arranged by this school. You guys are the missions generation. Many of you have gone on missions trips already. But for us, in my generation, that was a new experience. Many of us had never even traveled out of state, let alone the country. And I have to confess, my motivations in signing up for that trip were not as pure as I would have liked them to be. Uh, Governed by a lot of pride, I was a very proud uh, man. I thought, you know, if I go on this trip, I'm going to have an accomplishment in my life that a lot of my friends have never done. And it sounded like a great adventure. The trip was a trip to Brazil. sounded very exotic. Uh, we were going to spend five weeks there. Uh, I was invited to be part of a singing team, sang bass in that group. I'm not a great singer, but they let me join the team. But my primary responsibility was to preach. And uh, I have to tell you that that wasn't the motivation, though, as to why I signed up. I wanted to sign up to have some fun, to have an adventure, to see the world, and in a sense be able to kind of brag about my experience to my friends who'd never been outside the country. And so I signed up for this missions trip, and it was an amazing trip. And we had an air pass uh, on the national airlines. We flew all throughout the country. Uh, We were up in the deep part of the Amazon. Uh, We were out on the coast, got down to Sao Paulo and and Brazil, uh, I'm sorry, Sao Paulo and Rio. Got into the interior to an amazingly beautiful place called uh, Falls de Iguaçu, which uh, is just a, a testimony of God's creative hand on this planet. And there are a lot of fun experiences. I tell my kids these stories. Uh, My oldest son, Jacob, loves animals. And so he asked me to tell him stories about this trip to Brazil, where we did take canoes up the Amazon and into some of the tributaries, uh, where we saw uh, boa constrictors that were about 12 feet long. actually took one and wrapped it around my shoulders. Uh, I thought that was quite impressive, only to find out the snake was probably about 100 years old, and uh, every tourist who'd ever come through had probably put them on their shoulders. But uh, from that to crocodiles to, to actually swimming uh, in the Amazon, having just witnessed uh, some guys catch piranha uh, a few moments before. The uh, location we went in the Falls de Guasu, uh, there was a zoo there on the property of the hotel on the banks of those great waterfalls, and I remember one occasion with wild peacocks kind of roaming around. Uh, I was chased by an emu across the entire hotel property, only to escape its clutches by diving through a window in the lobby. And, uh, you know, I look back and and thank the Lord for those adventures and, and the fun experiences, but there was one particular experience that changed the course of my life forever. We were in the city of Manaus, And uh, we'd been invited by a missionary by the name of Stan Best to come and not only sing in his church, but he gave me his pulpit. I'd prepared a sermon out of Acts chapter 16. It's that wonderful text where uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. And in the midnight hour, they're singing and uh, praising God. And my outline was very simple. Uh, Paul and Silas, under difficult circumstances, are testimony to Christians that, that when the trials come, to do two things, to pray and to praise And uh, I preached that, but with the intent to flow into the text 
where the Philippian jailer enters into the room after the earthquake and he asks this profound question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul, of course, expresses clearly to him that he is to confess Christ and to follow him. And the wonderful account where Paul and Silas are taken to the jailer's home and the entire jailer's family comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It was at the end of that sermon, this is what we used to do back in the day, in the tradition I grew up in, you gave an altar call. And I said, well, I preached a sermon, I have to give an altar call. And so I asked everybody to bow their heads, and we began to sing a song, and invited those who wanted to respond to the gospel message, to the same question, what must I do to be saved, to come and find that answer this evening, here in this little church in the city of Manaus. I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. But as the music played and as people prayed, I'm sure five individuals walked the aisle and surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. I'd never experienced being a part of bringing somebody into the kingdom. And that young man who signed up to go on a missions trip because uh, he was motivated out of pride and seeking adventure and Uh, experience in life was confronted by God himself that night there was an altar call in my own life and he gave me the rich and wonderful experience of being a part of introducing somebody into his family and I remember after the music ceased playing and those who come down the aisle went back to meet with counselors and the congregation went on to enjoy kind of a, a dessert Uh, outside, I just sat down in the front row and I began to weep. I wept for a number of reasons. One, I was ashamed about how selfish and small my ambitions in life were. I began to weep because I experienced God at work somehow in and through me to accomplish what was eternal, that would forever change the destiny of those five people. Who came forward. Now I know that it was others who'd been praying for these folks and had invited them to come, and we were kind of the, uh, the big show there, the, the Americans who were coming to sing. I don't take credit for all the faithful seed planting and watering that others had done, but I got to have a small part in it. And God began to humble my heart. And see, I have to admit, up to that point, even though I'd heard missionaries' presentations and had grown up in the church, I really thought to myself, missions is the worst and last thing I would ever want to be called to do. I had great ambitions. I was a history major here, intending to go to law school. I already knew I wanted to live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., own a brick colonial home, uh, drive a 450 SL Mercedes convertible, and uh, find something noble to do in life. I sat there in the front row of that little church in Manaus with tears streaming down my face and my heart under great conviction to realize what I thought would be the worst thing God called me to do was actually the greatest thing I could ever surrender my life to. To spend my life somehow in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others could have the experience to know him. And that moment forever reframed my life. 
it reframed for me an understanding of why we're on this planet. And while I've had amazing experiences in my life as far as adventure and travel and uh, relationships, there is nothing, nothing that stands in comparison to the moment of introducing somebody to the Savior and seeing them respond by embracing Him. I have five kids. Every one of them is a joy. Three of them are adopted. Every one of them is an experience that we prayed for and we waited with great anticipation. The moment you hold that child in your arm, uh, you just rejoice and praise God for his provision. As much as I love my kids and as wonderful that experience is, it still pales in comparison to introducing somebody to be born into the family of God. I hope God gives me the privilege to bring each of my children into that relationship with him. But each of us has the opportunity, wherever he sends us, to be that instrument, that means, that person who can be used of God to introduce someone into the family of God. I have to confess, at that time, I really didn't understand the biblical teaching about missions. I didn't really understand the purpose of the church. But it's been my great joy throughout my life to study this theme in Scripture. And I want to share a brief insight with you on this understanding of the purpose of the church, or if you will, the purpose of each Christian. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a book I go back to frequently, time and time again, to find the encouragement to stay true to that first and primary calling. And we'll find in our text here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, that there are two primary purposes for why the church exists. Begin reading with me in chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but... For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, Peter's writing to the church, which is scattered abroad. 
because Nero had blamed the fires of Rome on the Christians, they had heightened persecution. So the Christians around the Roman Empire were under attack, facing persecution. And it's often suggested that the theme of the book of 1 Peter is, is the theme of suffering. I believe there's a, a greater and, and, and larger purpose in Peter's writing than just the idea of enduring through suffering. It is the case, my friends, that you follow Christ, and we sang about earlier, if we take up his cross and we follow in his footsteps, Christ assures us we will be met with persecution and ridicule. That's what we signed up for. When we got down on our knees, we confessed that we are a sinner who does not deserve the mercies of God, and we pled with him to forgive us. And we committed our life to make Christ as our Lord. And we took up our cross, and we committed to follow in his footsteps. And I have to tell you, in today's world, we may be met with persecution, and we may suffer. But I believe the greater focus of this book is not just enduring through suffering. It is fulfilling God's call upon our life as the church to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know this is true. If you look back at 1 Peter chapter 1 and read through verses 3 through 12, you would see that the emphasis there is this great gospel message that has brought to us a living hope. This is in verse 3, chapter four, uh, verse 4. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading and kept in heaven for us. It is through the work of Jesus Christ who deserves to be praised and glorified and honored in verse 7. In verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, it was the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. If you look at chapter 3, you see that Peter continues in making the point that it is under this wonderful work of the gospel that we continue to live our lives in holiness and faithfulness. Chapter 3, verse 18, makes the point, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh that made alive in the spirit in which we went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. He goes on to speak about baptism and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing the person and the work of Christ on our behalf. He goes on in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He talks about the sufferings of Christ and he did that on our behalf and, and that we are now no longer to live according to our former way of living and chasing after the world's priorities and appetites, but to live a life singularly devoted to our beloved Lord. All throughout this book, Paul is rehearsing the gospel and its attendant effect on our lives. And so we come to chapter 2. And for the time that we have, I want to focus particularly on verse 9. And we'll see in verse 9 that there are two primary purposes stated for why the church exists. Primary purpose number one, the church exists for worship. We see this in the first part. Let me read it again to you. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What is Peter saying here? 
he is summarizing who we are with regard to our identity in Christ. And there are four great theological truths that he outlines here or refers to. Let me just note them. He says, but you, of course it's a word of contrast here. He's saying you, now the church, those who are believers, you are a chosen race. Paul looks at the church now and says, you are the ones that God has elected to be his own. This is the great doctrine of election. He chose us. Aren't you thankful? The scriptures tell us that he chose us from eternity past. Before we could do anything to earn or merit his favor. He chose us. Let that truth soak into your hearts every morning when you get up. God chose you. And you. And you. And me. It can only produce a heart of humility, a heart of gratitude, a sense of, of, of being thrilled. You know the power of an invitation, don't you? I've been like you. I've wandered up in the dining center alone, wondering, is it going to be a miserable experience? I'm going to sit down at a table and everybody goes, is going to think I'm a loser. I have no friends. Nobody likes me. You know, you've had those thoughts. And someone comes along and says, hey, come sit with us. I can think of other experiences, whether to join an athletic team, whether it's intramural or, or to join uh, a team somewhere else, to, to have a roommate, to go somewhere with somebody. The power of the invitation where somebody says, I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. is one of the most powerful things we experience as a reminder that we're loved. Someone cares about us. God chose us. Undeserving. In fact, we're describing John 15 as what? Being enemies of Christ. But Christ lavished his love on us. And so Peter reminds us that we are those who are chosen, <laughs> chosen by God. Undeserving and loved. He goes on to say you're a royal priesthood. Of course, the idea of priesthood refers to the work of reconciliation. The Old Testament priests had a function. They would offer up sacrifices on behalf of sinful men and women, and through the sacrificial intervention or mediation, their sins would be forgiven. We know that now Christ is our great high priest. Okay, we are no longer obliged to participate in a sacrificial system because the ultimate sacrifice has been paid and provided for our sins. But throughout the New Testament, we're assigned the role of being a priest. Following in the footsteps of Christ means this. We, in a small sense, can be mediators between sinful men and a holy God. What a great message it is that we get to declare. When you go to people who, whether they suppress the truth or the Spirit has brought them to a place of recognition and confession that they are sinners, we get to say, there is a God who forgives. You don't have to worry 
about a long list of prohibitions or a long list of demands like most man-centered false religions. There's nothing that we can do. And we get to declare to people, God's wrapped up this gift for you. Characterized by grace and love and mercy and compassion to you who are undeserving. And he will not only forgive, but he will remove your sins. It's even hard to understand, right? Because those of us who are human, it's hard for us to forget when we've been sinned against. And we know that. Even when a friend's forgiven us, we know they remember our offense against them. But God said he dismisses his recollection of those sins on our behalf. What an amazing message we get to declare. And God says here that we get to function in a priestly role. An amazing ministry of reconciliation. The third theological principle that he emphasizes here is he says that you are now called to be a holy nation. A people who are characterized by holiness. And we know that there is only one who is ultimately holy. It's God himself. But we who now bear the name of Christ as Christians and have been gifted with the Holy Spirit who resides within us, who claim the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to what? Complete it. Is that your hope? It is mine. That God is perfecting us so that we will share in his holiness. And what that means in real time is he's sanctifying us. This is the great theological truth of sanctification. God is making us holy. Peter understands that. Matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 1, after talking about the work of the gospel, he says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's an amazing principle. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. In the context of the law being given to the Israelites, and God saying to them, you need to function in a priestly role. You need to live in a holy manner. He gives them the law. But he says the purpose of the law is not that you can even meet the law, but that you have a standard for holiness to aspire to. And he says, what I really want to accomplish in your lives is that you will be holy like I am holy. This is what God intends to do in the work of sanctification. And and simply stated, as we live a holy and sanctified life, we what? We bear testimony to God. To the extent we don't live a holy life, we do what? We compromise the testimony of God. Matter of fact, we live as hypocrites. And this undermines our gospel testimony. And so Peter here is reminding us that if we're going to function as God's chosen people in a priestly fashion, that we too have to be holy. This is what God wants to accomplish in our lives. 
And the fourth theological principle that we see here as it relates to the work of the gospel in verse 9 of chapter 2 is that we are a people for his own possession. And this is that great doctrine of adoption. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, the principle is the same. Someone who was a slave, who was brought into the household of a king or a landowner or someone who was... uh, in a position of authority and power and influence, would take this person who was a slave and bring them into their home and place on them the full rights and privileges of a birth child. This is what it means to be a people of God's own possession. It means that we are now considered to be his children, family members, In all the language of the New Testament that talks about the relationships within the church, describe us as what? Brothers and sisters. We talk about Jesus Christ as being the begotten Son of God. You and I are the adopted sons and daughters of God. That's why we can say, as Paul testifies, that we are joint heirs with Christ. And the implication of the inheritance that has been entrusted to us as the adopted children of God is the riches of his mercies that we will enjoy for all of eternity. In essence, what we find here in the first part of verse 9 is a brief summation of what the Apostle Paul offers for us in Ephesians chapter 1. That great text that talks about the work of election and regeneration, of justification and salvation and sanctification and glorification. It's the same exact truth that that Paul unpacks for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Peter reminds us, the church, you are a chosen race, chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood who mediates between sinful man and God, you are a holy nation of people who are to live in a fashion that's consistent with the character of God. And you are the very children of God, entrusted with an inheritance that is shared with Christ himself. Is there any greater message than this? To tell a lost and dying world? And you and I have had our eyes opened. We've had the truth revealed to us. We've been trained and equipped to do that. And God in his sovereignty is going to set us in places, not just this summer, but all throughout our life. It's going to be in the workplace and the person in the cubicle next to you or the person across from the boardroom table. It's going to be in the classroom, whether a student or a fellow teacher or a principal. It might be in a hospital or a clinic where there's a patient or a fellow nurse or a physician. It might be as part of a church missions endeavor where you're working in a village or in an urban context. And it will even be in your own home with your own children and your neighbors. But God's plan for you and I is to live in light of this greater reality of who he has made us to be and what he's done on our behalf. And I'll tell you what, when you have that perspective, 
there is no fear about the future. God has a plan for your life. I know there's a lot of seniors in here. Many of you are wondering what job you'll have when you graduate or in a few months from now. I want to encourage you. Don't worry. God has a plan for your life. You focus on being the person that he desires for you to be. And I promise you, he will place you exactly where he wants to use you. And it really doesn't matter if you're delivering pizzas in the early part of your career or if you're the president or CEO of a big firm or a company. It does not matter. The purpose is the same. You get that right, you can go anywhere, do anything. And I'm looking at this room, probably a thousand people, and God's getting ready to dis disperse you across this planet. And I know Lisa and the faculty and other leaders can't wait to hear those of you who are going to return and give testimony about where God placed you and who you met and who you talked to. Well, let's go on and look at the second part of this verse. The church exists for worship. That means we have to be the kind of people who put Christ in his rightful place, declare him as first priority in our lives. We honor him with all that we are, all of our ambitions, all of our efforts. As we might expect, we see the second primary purpose is that the church exists for witness. Of course, I've already alluded to that, but let's just read the second part of verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 9. If you're this kind of person, Peter says, equipped by God, this is what he wants you to do. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We know here that his intention is that we advance the message of redemption and the gospel. Later in verse 12 in the context there, he says, as you go out and live a godly life, he uses the phrase good deeds. What that means is living a sanctified life. Whatever you do, it's motivated by love, by truth, by mercy, by compassion, by justice. Okay, this is the character of God, and so your actions then are informed by that character, that sanctified character. Whatever you do, you're going to live in such a way that you shine as a bright light. And there are going to be Gentiles or unbelievers around you who are going to look at your life and they're going to say, okay, I cannot criticize you. I cannot reproach you. Okay? Because you have a life of integrity. A life that is consistent with the message that you preach. And the Lord that you profess. As you live a life that's characterized by truth, and justice, and mercy, and compassion, and love, then you have every right to preach a gospel about a Christ who's going to extend what? Justice, and mercy, and love, and compassion to that person. This is the effectiveness of our witness, both in our actions and in our words. Now, it's interesting when we put this in its context with regard to the global scope of God's redemptive plan. Let me just remind you a little bit of Peter's own life experience. Was it not Peter who, walking with the Lord Jesus, 
would hear him say things like a group gathered that we read about in Matthew chapter 8 of Jewish people who were there following Christ because they wanted to benefit practically from his miraculous ministry, his, his uh, ministry among them with regard to the poor and those who are sick and so forth. And in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, a very interesting thing happens. And the disciples, imagine the disciples watching this. And Christ hears the shout out of a Roman centurion. This man is not a Jew, he's a Gentile. And he hears this man ask Christ if he would simply speak the words to heal his servant. Remember Christ's response? Christ looks up and past all of the mayhem and and the murmuring and the chattering and the, the jockeying for position of the crowd around him. And he looks at the Roman centurion and he says, greater faith have I not found in Israel. Now Peter being Jewish and all the disciples and his crowd being Jewish must have been startled to hear Christ say that This Gentile, not a Jewish person, is exhibiting saving faith, genuine trust in God. And Christ, out of his mercy, recognizes that and, of course, heals the man's servant. It was Peter who heard Christ tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And who's the hero in the story? Jew or Well, it was a Samaritan, a half-breed, someone who was despised by the Jews, who's half-Gentile and half-Jew. But it's he who Christ looks to as illustrating genuine Christian love. It was Peter who was present when Christ came into the uh, the temple and seeing how the Jews had turned uh, the temple into a place of exploitation, financially among the poor and Christ gets the whip out and he cleanses the temple the portion that he cleansed was known as the court of the Gentiles and this was a place if you go back and read the testimony of Solomon and the construction of the temple that a place that even the foreigner could come and pray to God and while there are many other examples the most obvious of course is found in Matthew chapter 28 when Christ prepares to ascend And he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That great commission passage. See, Peter heard Christ repeatedly give testimony that the scope and scale of his redemptive plan was not limited to the Jews, but was to entail all the nations. And Peter understood that commission even more boldly when in Acts chapter 1 as they have been told to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, then you'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Peter, observing the power of the Holy Spirit there in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost where the church was inaugurated, himself is appointed as the spokesperson to stand before that congregation that had men from every foreign language group in the Roman Empire present 
where they heard the gospel message in their own tongue. And Peter had the great privilege to declare the glories of Christ. It would be Peter who would join the Apostle Paul after his first missionary journey there in Jerusalem where a debate arose over whether or not Gentile believers would have to subscribe to the law. And Peter, sadly, was distracted and and caught up, I'm sure, out of fear of man issues as those who were trying to persuade the church leaders there in Jerusalem that these Gentiles who come to faith in Paul's missionary endeavors should be circumcised. If you go and read the book of Galatians, particularly chapter 2 and chapter 3, that was written right after this account that we find in Acts chapter 15, Paul explains very clearly that he had to approach Peter and remind him of the gospel of grace. See, this was still the Peter who was sleeping on a rooftop in the city of Joppa, and the door, there were knocks on the door, and as Peter answered the door, he received an invitation to go where? Go up north to Caesarea to another Roman centurion's house, Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, and Peter had the great privilege of preaching the gospel to this Gentile and seeing his entire household come to faith in Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 15, Peter began to shy back. And if you read the account in Galatians chapter 3, Paul simply reminds that it is those who are of faith, who are the true descendants of Abraham, whether they are Jew or Gentile, and we are now all under the covenant of grace. And it was Peter then who stood up before the elders in Jerusalem, and he defended He defended the global scope of God's redemptive plan in saying there is no longer distinction between Jew and Greek, to borrow from Paul's words. And he says that we cannot impose a former system of the law on these new believers. And from that point forward, the church was unleashed to affirm the missionary message of Jesus Christ. It's that same Peter who writes this text. And he says, you beloved, you who are chosen by God to function as priests, to live a holy life as God's adopted children. You You must understand that you are on this planet to advance this great and wonderful message to the lost. My friends, a day will come soon. Maybe not in earthly years, but with regard to God's timetable, where he will gather up his chosen ones, his adopted ones, his priests, his holy ones. And we will spend all of eternity gathered around the throne with one unified voice, no matter what our language group was, our skin color, our cultural background, our economic class, no matter what it is, God is redeeming men and women from every single context to stand before that throne with us, and we will forever sing the praises 
of our beloved Lord and Savior. I don't know what you were planning to do this summer, but I hope this brief reminder from the book of 1 Peter gives you the perspective that you need to have no matter where God is sending you. Those of you who are getting on planes and going around the planet, have an amazing time. But be the person that God wants you to be. Okay? Those of you who have jobs this summer, you're going to work hard to save so you can come back, so you can continue to be equipped. Be the person that God wants you to be. Okay? Those of you who are going back into difficult home situations, it's okay. God's in control. Okay? Be the person God wants you to be. And those of you who are graduating, you're about to embark on the greatest adventure. You've been equipped. You've been trained. You're ready. You might be scared, but don't be. Just be the person that God wants you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and we can't help but express our gratitude and praise to you to worship you with full hearts for all that you've done on our behalf. And not just what you've done for us, but what you intend to do through us. And I pray for every student here that you would set in the foundation of their heart a complete confidence as to what your purpose for them is. And I pray, God, that they would be submissive to the guiding and convicting work of your Holy Spirit. The truth that has been entrusted to them continue to cause it to bear fruit of righteousness. And until you draw us home, whether by death or in the resurrection, may you use each and every one of us to bring others into your family.